This is the Two Spies Podcast, a part of the Numa Life family. Get ready to dig deeper in the Bible, have your worldviews challenged, and gain some different perspectives. Now, the conversation begins with your two spies, David and Mark. Okay, welcome back to Two Spies. We're going to dive right into Ishmael tonight. <laughs> well, crap. I got notes for Joseph, so that's not good. They're probably going to be the same thing, you know. Okay. They're a story in the Bible about Jesus. So. They're both in Genesis. <laughs> I'll so. talk about Ishmael. You talk about Joseph. We'll They'll just, somehow connect together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, what did we end with last time? Uh, I don't even remember. Uh, we should go back and listen to our own podcast. We should. I used to, but then I just kind of time just kind of get gets yeah. away from me, and I just and I don't want to hear my own voice. <laughs> well, that's a good point too. Yeah. You don't want to hear my own voice. No. I like my own voice, just not yours. Uh, all right. Well, that's how we do things. I'm going to say we probably ended with the coat of many colors. That's right. That's right. Um, one thing I wanted to do um, in my notes was kind of go back to Joseph's name, just because I kind of looked at it further a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I put, you know, we've been talking about the Hebrew um, numerology. Yeah, how well how how it has three layers of meaning. Yeah, yeah pictographic meanings and number meanings. Yeah, and- so I kind of went with Joseph's name, just kind of looking at it real quick and. Um, I know we're going to kind of, we'll probably do a separate podcast entirely on the comparison, the parallel between Jesus and Joseph. Um, but I just want to do uh, the transliteration meaning for Joseph's name, as we talked about, was um, Yahweh to increase or Yahweh has added, um, which we talked about in the last, or one of, yeah, the last uh, podcast with Joseph. So the, pic- the pictograph meaning, so give you, to, to give you the letters, it's Yud. Um, Vav, I don't know how to pronounce the last one. Samach. Samik. Samik. Pei. Um, so those are the four letters for his name. And um, so the pictograph meaning. I'm uh, listening. I'm okay. just thinking. Oh, okay. So the pictograph meaning. I'm looking over here was, in space when I'm thinking like, <laughs> like that. He's looking at my water. <laughs> um, so the pictograph meaning I put is a mighty a mighty deed done to secure and support according to the word. And the numeric meaning I put is, uh, this is kind of a long one, but um, after a divinely ordered sequence of events and exactly the right time, Messiah will enter man's world and accomplish for man what he cannot accomplish because of sinfulness, weakness, and pride. (laughs) That's the numeric meaning of Joseph. That's, That's the numeric meaning. I'm interested how you broke some of it down. Sure. So Yud is the numeric number is ten, yeah, and that means perfection of divine order, completeness, testimony, the Ten Commandments, the ten commandments yeah. etc. Okay. Um, Vav is the number six, which M- means enmity man. with God, weakness of man, the manifestation of sin, evil, falling short, etc. Yeah. Um, Samak is the number sixty, which means pride, and Pei is eighty. Um, which really talks about a new beginning, a new earth, um, perfection resulting in eternity. Yeah, eight times ten. That's another way I've heard rabbinic breakdown num- numerically. Yeah, I put eight, I put ten times eight magnified, or yeah, to, for the perfection. So, 
That's so that's how neat. I kind of put that whole sentence together. So I kind of thought, you know, um, as we dive more into to Jesus and his name being pretty much the same, um, yeah. him fulfilling and one foreshadowing. So I um, just wanted to kind of revisit his I'm name. I'm going to have you break down Zafanapaneo when we get there. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Don't promise anything. So now we kind of open to Genesis 37. I put we start back at about verse 5. I think it's after all the, the code of many colors, right? Yeah, well, I wanted to go on. I guess this is a good spot before. doesn't really matter. It's probably a bad spot. <laughs> but It's a spot nonetheless. <laughs> it's a spot that we are now in. So still on clothing is why I didn't want to go on yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, when I started looking at the clothing, I started noticing a bunch of different clothing and unclothing scenarios of Joseph. And it wasn't all my, you know, noticing as I'm reading some commentaries, et cetera. And I think it was in my, uh, uh, what is it called? Jewish study Bible. Yeah. The JSB, uh, I use sometimes has the rabbinic notes in it. Mm-hmm. They make comment on that. Uh, the w- changes in the narrative when a situation of clothing changes is how they hmm. viewed it. So Genesis 37, three, his father gave him a ketonet. Ketonet was what we talked about originally, his, uh, tunic or his coat of, coat of many colors, right. his coat of long sleeves was called a ketonet. Uh, so Genesis 37.3, his father gave him a ketonet. Genesis 37.23, his brothers take his ketonet. Hello? <laughs> Sorry about that. Genesis 39.15-18, Potiphar's wife takes his beged from him. So a different word for clothing, but... You see here, his father gives him something. His brothers take it. His father elevates him. His brothers de-elevate him or throw him down. Uh, When Potiphar's wife takes his clothes, she gets him cast further down. Genesis 41, 14, he is taken from the pit or dungeon, and a simla is given him. So he's taken out of the pit, which is what the actual word for the Egyptian dungeon is. He's taken out of that, and he's given clothes. So taking clothes from him takes him further down, bringing him up out of that lower place or elevating him more, clothes are given to him. And then Genesis 41, 42, Pharaoh addresses him in Begad Shesh. So just breaking it down just a little bit, uh, Ketanet is a tunic or undergarment. And I looked at some other places that uh, Ketanet would show up or some other places that Begad would show up or uh, Begad Shesh. So... uh, Ketonet is a tunic or undergarment. Yahweh God dressed Adam and Eve in a ketonet. So just keep that on your back burner for a second. Okay. On your front burner, Jacob dressed Joseph in a ketonet in fatherly love. His brothers stripped him of his ketonet. They did not tear it. They took it. But just looking at ketonet, Joseph gives it in fatherly love. God gives it to Adam and Eve. Mm. What spirit is he giving it to them in but a spirit of love? He's covering them. They've done wrong. He's fixing to kick them out. He clothes them before he sends them out. Hmm. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Begged. Begged is a garment. It's also a noun for treachery or deceit. I think uh, Isaiah, I don't know if I have it here in the notes. Isaiah says, uh, all my righteousness is filthy rags. Mm-hmm. The word begged is involved in that. Okay. I believe that in that verse, that's what that is. Uh but I went first with Abraham's servant gave Rebecca Begged. 
So when he went to get her and bring her back as a bride for Isaac, he gave her clothing or, or a garment, gave her begged. That seems to be the only good one. Uh, Rebecca later <laughs> took Esau's best begged and put them on Jacob for the purpose of deceit. Remember, begged is also a noun for treachery or deceit. Trickery. Hmm. Lying to somebody. So Rebecca takes Esau's begging and puts him on Jacob for that purpose. When Reuben saw Joseph was gone, he tore his begging. And the whole deal right there is, I mean, not necessarily Reuben's, but they're fixing to use Joseph's coat to deceive their father again. Right. Uh, Potiphar's wife takes his begging from Joseph and deceives her husband. When Tamar sought to deceive Judah, she took off her widow's begging. Just neat there, what it's, what it's tied up with. A simla is another word for a garment. A simla is a wrapper, a mantle, or a covering garment. Shem and Yafif covered Noah with a simla. Jacob tore his simla when he heard Joseph had died. Joseph was dressed in a simla when he was taken out of the pit in Egypt's jail. I mean, so what do you, what do you see there as a whole? Uh, Shem and Japheth covering Noah, they're covering shame, or they're kind of covering over something that is as bad. Jacob tore his seam law when he heard Joseph had died. He's really opening his shame by tearing the covering. Hmm. There's a covering or wrapper garment. He's tearing that, so he's opening up shame in a way, or his own shame out of his heart. Joseph was dressed in a seam law when he was taken out of the pit. So, in a sense, his shame of being a jailbird is being covered up, and he's Fixed to get elevated again. So Pharaoh addresses him in a beged shesh. Shesh is a white bleached linen. It's tied to alabaster and marble. It's in in that sense, if you can picture like a kingdom hall of or of a, a hall of a king with big pillars. Is this is this where you're talking about where they clean them up and then they're presented to Pharaoh? Or is this he was cleaned up and given a simla? Okay. Pharaoh, after he decided he was going to be the right-hand man of the king, of, of Pharaoh, dressed him in a beggar's sheish. Okay, okay. So a sheish is a much, much higher honorable thing. But if you picture like marble steps and huge pillars in a, in a hall of a king or uh, a royal society, that would be sheish. Uh, it's related to the word Susa, which is the capital in Persia at one time. Hmm. And the name Susan or Susanna comes from Susa or Shesh. The word shows up repeatedly in the making of the tent of meeting of Moses and the high priest's garments. So the tent of meeting that we that the Lord would come to, that word Shesh is constantly all over the the uh, different materials that are there, and then the high priest's garments. And they don't it of course does not mean white in that, but usually it means bright, shining, bleached white. Huh. Uh, let's see, the last one was a boar. This is not a word for, uh, I think I just looked at this one because it was interesting when I got there. A boar is a pit. His garment was taken in Genesis 37. He was thrown into a boar. Here, Pharaoh takes him out of the boar and dresses him back up. Hmm. So just, just a neat concept that it's part of the narrative like that to see clothes show his elevation or degrading hmm. through the whole process. Interesting. I'm thinking about other stories. I mean... Obviously, my mind goes to Jesus, but um, you think of the clothing and the garments, and yeah, uh, from heaven's clothing of righteousness and glory to earth, and then 
you know, after they beat him and crucified, or, you know, they tear up his garments yeah. and split them and et cetera. Yeah. So. <clears throat> well, I think also about when you mentioned him coming from heaven and de-robing de in a way. I told you before, I think about when he gets up to wash everybody's feet, he takes off his garment, his outer garment, at the upper, uh, upper room, the Last Supper. Right. He takes that off and, in a sense, changes or takes off clothes, becomes a servant to demonstrate to them what a servant is. When he takes his seat back, he puts his clothes back on. Hmm. So, yeah, same same concept there. Jacob's dreams? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not sure, is he? <laughs> not sure is he no, don't know <laughs> don't know he doesn't don't um, know he doesn't <laughs> that's a bad sentence Yoda or English it doesn't matter not bad um, so verse 5 uh, I want to do verse 5 through 8 because I want to break down um, a few things in those verses break them um, so now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers they hated him even more or he said to them hear this dream that I have dreamed behold we are we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more to, uh, for his dreams and for his words. Um, obviously, behold, three times is kind of an interesting uh, thing. I, I know in the Hebrew, whenever something is said three times it's almost like an emphasis or a, a pay attention well, i was going to say i was looking specifically at behold but i did verse seven and verse nine okay <laughs> uh well I'll, we'll we'll skip because they're two different dreams right and right. i just record the main verse giving each dream okay. and then that is five times okay well we'll look at that in a second <laughs> good i'm gonna fast forward uh so but what is a sheaf a sheaf is a bundle of things tied together stalks of grain uh, for transportation, um, figurative um, of something that is completed, uh, the laws of sacrifice called for the first harvested sheaves. They were harvested as first fruits. Um, Leviticus twenty three ten through fifteen. Um, uh, I'm gonna let me read that real quick. Leviticus twenty three ten through fifteen. Because um, there's some things in there. Just speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. I'll stop there. Um, so you bring your sheaf as a first fruit. Uh, the priest will wave it before the Lord and you'll be accepted. And then on the eighth day, you will be the one to wave it. Um, so I kind of talked to you earlier about the eighth day. Mm -hmm. um, the eighth day is obviously um, a day of... It's the same day for circumcision. Yeah. And it's... Um, it's a day of new beginnings. Um, let me read this article from a book called The Jewish Way by Rabbi, Rabbi Irving Greenberg. It says, when the seven days of Sukkot, right? Sukkot? Yeah. Yeah, booths. Yeah. Uh, and the Bible decrees yet another holiday, the eighth day of assembly. The rabbis interpret this as an encore. After the high holy days... 
After the intense seven days of Sukkot, or Sukkot and pilgrimage, the Jewish people um, say we should say more accurately, God's people are about to leave, to scatter, and to return to their homes. God grows, um, as it were, and wait, let me skip that sentence. Uh, the people of Israel will not come together again in such numbers until Passover, six months hence. God will soon miss the sounds of music and pleasures and the unity of the people. The Torah decreed, therefore, an eighth day of assembly, a final feast holy day. On this day, Jews leave the sukkah to resume enjoying the comfort of solid, well-built, well-installated homes. Um, so... He just makes a few notes about what the eighth day is as a holiday. Um, after seven days of atonement, Aaron still needed to offer a sin offering for himself as a priest on the eighth day, and then for everyone. <laughs> um, Leviticus. Is that in Fates of Booths? Leviticus 23? Um, no, there, let's see. Um, I got a few scriptures. Let me go. Leviticus 8. I think I wrote it down right. 834. See. 834 is uh, or chapter 8 is uh, priest ordaining that's just ordination um, ceremony as has been done today the Lord has commanded to be done to make an atonement for you so that's not right that's the right. consecration chapter yeah or maybe it's chapter 9 let's see uh, okay chapter 9 verse 1 on the 8th day Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel and he said to Aaron Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And said to the people of Israel, uh, Take a male for the sin offering, take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. I'm glad we ain't got to get all this stuff together now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that. <laughs> um, also, I kind of mentioned, you know, people, some people say that um, this is kind of tied into the millennial reign of Christ. Yeah. Um, that the, the time is pictured the seven days as the tabernacles, and then the eighth day would be um, the day that the, tab the tabernacle ends and the actual tabernacle himself yeah. comes and rules. So, with all that, well, I'm not done. Sorry. <laughs> is there a seven? Is there an eighth day mentioned in Leviticus 23? Just curious. Mm. Yeah, 23:36. That is in the Feast of Booth section. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, "On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work." For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. Yeah, I mean, verse 11 of 23 just says on the day after the Sabbath. So, so not technically said the eighth day, but... That's in Feast of First Fruits, though. What you're getting at with the Feast of... Sukkot is the Feast of Booths, so in that section it's literally oh, named yeah. Eighth Day. Right. Uh, I was telling his son what you were texting me about it, 
at uh, supper time. <clears throat> I'm curious to see what, how it will layer because I get what you're saying, what you're talking about. I've read it before, too, where uh, biblically, and this is what I get at when I keep naming the timeline every time we go to a new character in Genesis, and I want to keep on track with the timeline, is that biblically, you look at what uh, year it is in the Jewish calendar, we're coming up on about 6,000. Mm-hmm. If you do your, your math about biblically through what's written on the pages, we're in about 6,000 years coming up soon. So they they do have some different disagreements on throughout time about who decided to establish when was zero, <laughs> et cetera, right. but how to count through some particular sections that are confusing. But because uh, there's not a biblical way that I have found yet to track through uh, the Babylonian exile. You can track from Adam to uh, Gedalia, who is the governor of Jerusalem, or governor of, yeah, he's governor of Jerusalem, placed in place by the Babylonians. You can count from Adam to Gedalia for, I think it's 3,665 years. But when did Nebuchadnezzar come? You jump over to a secular calendar then, hmm. which is, is it 608 BC? Uh, 605 BC. It's something like that, yeah. Call it 600 years. You added 3665 and 600. And from there, then you you're going to get about zero, and you add two thousand. So you you kind <laughs> right. of you can do it. It's just I can't biblically go through page by page and get out and say because you might have the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar mentioned, but you don't have a total number of years that he was king mentioned somewhere. So you can't say uh, doesn't matter. It really wouldn't matter if we had a total number of years like he was king for 52 years. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't care what happened in his 19th year. We wouldn't need that to, in order to add the time. So that's why I'm saying it's kind of confusing to get through some parts of it once you get to a certain area. But either way, <clears throat> so if it, and this is, I guess I've heard this kind of applied like this. I don't like this because it's trying to put Bible into a mathematical formula we can, sure. but a day is a thousand years and the Lord and right. vice versa. Right. But this brings it up that if we're coming from about the 6,000th year, or 6,000 years, that we're coming on the sixth day. You would just divide it that way. Right. And that would mean that the millennial kingdom is the seventh day. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was looking at because uh, when you were saying that to me, Jer- uh, Jeremiah, Zechariah, he's talking about in the 14th chapter, the coming day of the Lord. It's full of all kind of good end time stuff. Uh, he'll set his feet down on the Mount of Olives, that kind of thing. The Mount of Olives will split east to west. So he goes through all this right here. Um, just to cut to the end. He's talking, let's see, tw- uh, 14 and th- verse 12. This shall be the plague which the Lord shall strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. So we're talking about Heavy judgment stuff. <laughs> this is the day of the Lord. Once all that's accomplished, um, let's see, skip to verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the, the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. So after, if you layer this over and kind of look and say, this seems to be end times, day of the Lord stuff, Armageddon type Judgment. After all that's said and done, everybody who's still alive comes to Jerusalem and celebrates the Feast of Booths. 
The whole world comes and celebrates a Jewish holiday. <laughs> um, if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague which, which, with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and, to, and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So pretty plain we're going to be keeping the Feast of Booths after all is said and done still. If the Feast of Booths at this point, if we layer this over and, and with the idea that you're bringing here, if the Feast of Booths layers over the Millennial Kingdom, it's a thousand years that we go to worship the Lord at Jerusalem all the time. We literally celebrate Sukkot, meaning we, if you live in America and you make it through that time, you're buying a plane ticket, if there's any pilots left, and you go to Jerusalem once a year or something, and whatever, whenever the time will be then, but you go there and you build a uh, makeshift Sukkah, and you live in that for a week, and you celebrate Sukkot. Right. So after that's said and done, though, that was when I would be saying, "How does it layer over?" Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with <clears throat> the millennial talk. I just <clears throat> read it from a few sources and just thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, <clears throat> I didn't have time to really look into it, and because I know it kind of deals with Revelation and end times, I didn't really want to go too far into. Uh, I don't think it'll take long. Let's <clears throat> let's look at two seconds here. Sure. Revelation 20. <coughs> Excuse me. Revelation 20 talks about a thousand years. Uh, just to kind of skim it fast, the angel came down with a, a key and a chain to the bottomless pit, and he sees the dragon, who's the devil. He bounds him for a thousand years and threw him in the pit. Then verse 4, and saw thrones, and those, who, those to whom authority to judge was committed. They were seated on them, and they were, or they were given opportunity to sit down on those thrones. Uh, let's see. The rest of the day, this is verse 5, the rest of the day did not, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh Verse 7, the defeat of Satan. And when a thousand years are ended, so that if we're taking our concept here of layering over the feast, <clears throat> that's in, we need to look at something else too for a second in a moment sure, about good. what number is what over what thousand years. That would be <laughs> okay. very interesting. Okay. Um, but when a thousand years is ended, which we're, is the millennial kingdom thousand years, when we're calling possibly Sukkot, mm-hmm. going from verse 7 all the way to the verse, uh, the end of chapter 20, verse 15. Death and haze were thrown to the lake of fire. This is the second death, lake of fire. If anyone's name was not written, found was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown to the lake of fire. If that ends, that judgment ends the thousand year reign, what's next? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. There's a whole lot of new concepts here like like an eight. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking, and, and eight is, <clears throat> is eight not rest also? It's a new beginning. I've seen it linked with salvation. I don't know. Maybe I'm just hopeful. 
because I, I wish sometimes we'd just get to rest one day. <laughs> well, I don't think we'll need to rest. Well, that's the funny thing. You don't get to rest in life, and you're not going to need to let rest in death. Yeah. But I do think it goes with, kind of with the concept of what's uh, what's after as far as the concept of eight. I mean, after the thousand years, if the, if the thousand years are the Feast of Booths. <clears throat> right. So, flipping back to Leviticus 23, this will, I just want to answer my question for myself. <laughs> <laughs> If the Feast of Booths is uh, seven or the seven thousandth group, what is one thousand? Just going by this chapter and by Moses' feast, Passover, two thousand first fruits. I said, I guess you'd have Passover and then unleavened bread. Mm-hmm. And then your first fruits start in verse nine. You would have the three thousand group. I'm saying that wrong. Zero to one thousand, and then. 101 to 2000, 2001 to 3000 would be first fruits. And 3001 to 4000, Feast of Weeks, or the uh, Shavuot, which is the church age, if you layer it over time, mm-hmm. which ends with the Feast of Trumpets, which would be 4001 to 5000. And then, uh, what's next? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, would be the 6,000 range, or up to 6,000, 5,001 to 6,000. Next one, 6,001 to 7,000 would be Feast of Booths. Okay, it it works. I just wondered. (laughs) (laughs) Just an interesting little concept, maybe to look at. So what comes, just just an odd question, what comes after that in Leviticus 24? The lamps. Oh, and lamps. And the bread for the tabernacle. Okay, just wonder. Chapter 25 is the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. Year of Jubilee. I'm like <laughs> to spend some time on year of Jubilee sometime soon because that's an interesting concept. But when we get into Moses, I don't know what yeah. direction we'll get into or... Because there's a lot to deal with with sacrificial systems and Egyptians and yeah, um, but <clears throat> so just kind of going back to the the sheaf, uh, uh, Genesis thirty seven. Is that where we started with the sheaf? <laughs> yes, because I talked because I read about <laughs> what a sheaf is and they're offering it the first fruits on the on the eighth day. You wave it after the priest waves it. Um, another way sheaves has been used is figurative, as judgment. Jeremiah nine twenty two. Amos 2.13, Micah 4.12, and Zechariah 12.6 are just a few examples of where uh, prophets are using sheaf as uh, a figurative way of explaining judgment. Um, the word, again, sheaf means a bundle of things tied together, stalks of grain for the transport. Um, I did, again, the, uh, picto- the, pic- the pictographic meaning and the numeric meaning. Uh, the pictographic meaning is a strong leader is coming with a staff who will bring the word of God and unfold its truth. And then the numeric is after a mm. period of uh, after a period of dominion, God's unmerited favor will bring u- unity through a blood sacrifice. <laughs> so <clears throat> the reason why I kind of said that was when you think of 
um, his dream and the sheaves and um, what's going to happen. Again, a foreshadowing of Jesus, how, um, you know, strong leaders come with a staff who will bring the word of God and unfold its truth. Jesus being the good shepherd and the numeric again, after a period of dominion, after a timeline of um, being ruled over or after trials, um, God's unmerited favor will bring unity, Gentiles yeah. and the Jews, um, through a blood sacrifice. So but you really see it over Joseph's life too. Yeah, a time of trial and everything, and then elevation. So I put pretty much overall a sheaf is a gathering of sticks or people through a work to be offered to the Lord. Um, while we do in while we um, we'll do an episode again, Jesus and Joseph. But um, I didn't want to miss this either. Um, a sheaf is offered as a sacrifice to be accepted by God on the eighth day. And if you go back to the pictographic and the numeric meaning of a sheaf, it all really comes together. It's about Joseph. Yes, it's about Joseph and what's going to happen with his brothers and Egypt and then bowing down. But even more so, I think it's, again, a shadow of, of Jesus or the Messiah coming. It's, it's uh, revealing of what's about to happen. So um, the eighth day circumcision is the day that we're set apart. Yeah, it's the day that we wave our sheaf. It's the way that um, God atones for you know Jesus comes and and um, you know we 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 accept him. We we wave our sheaf so to speak um, to him to yeah. be accepted. So I've been curious about the the wave offering because when you read it uh, in the beginning of uh, Leviticus there. There's a bunch of different kinds of offerings, and they're not all distinguished in purpose. And one of the, one of them being a wave offering is just kind of odd. <laughs> you picture it literally in your mind. They bring this offering thing, stand in front of the altar, hold it up in the air, wave it back and forth. <laughs> and what does that mean? God's waving back at you. <laughs> hey. I see you. <laughs> it's just an odd, odd one I've read before. I think, what is the reason for that <laughs> yeah I have no idea of course it probably has something to do with hands being up possibly like a surrender or something it's a wave offering I wonder what the word is if it has the something like the word for hand or praise in it here we go on a tangent <laughs> but here we go here we go uh, Exodus 29 24 is first place that wave shows up And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and shall wave them as a wave offering. So wave it for itself is noof. To move to and fro, wave, besprinkle. Besprinkle. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. You said Exodus what? It is Exodus twenty nine twenty four. So it's nuf, and a wave offering is tenufa. Swinging, waving, wave offering, offering, swinging, brandishing of God's hand, of God's weapons. Offering, a technical term of sacrifice. Or offering gold or brass, of gold or brass. Just wondered. Noof, I don't recognize as being, it doesn't strike me as anything. 
I simply mean it doesn't strike me in my limited Hebrew vocabulary right. as being related to some other word that would strike something in my memory or whatever. Just wondering if it had something to do with a hand or whatever lifted up. I mean, I just see the root word is to move to and fro. <laughs> moving to, moving back and forth. It doesn't really do a whole lot <laughs> of anything. Uh, and so. And I think I mentioned this last week, and then um, I'll be done with the dreams. I'll let you kind of do your... Right. Um, yeah. I put the first dream, mentioned sheaves, which um, can be like stalks of grain. In other words, earthly things. I told you this last week. I don't know if you remember. And then I put the second dream. It mentions the sun, moon, and the 11 stars. Yeah. Um, I put Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, a two-dimension world. Uh we call what we see in our world Earth, and everything else is grouped as the heavens, technically. Uh, the dreams, though, specific to Joseph's brothers bowing down when they could, um, when they would come seek help from him about the famine and, and so forth. Um, everything in the heavens and on earth will bow down before Jesus, Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Uh, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by, be by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to glory in God the Father. So I kind of saw it as um, the two in dreams, um, like a symbolic type thing of jesus to where the earth is going to bow and then the heavens are going to bow yeah and so i kind of interpret took that as again another foreshadowing of everything's going to bow before christ so what we didn't i mean that's what we talked about it if we had just hit the button last week <laughs> to record anything but anyway uh we talked about the the dreams a little bit and i had wondered about the uh Sun and moon and 11 stars because they act like, oh, you can, we're going to bow down. And then Jacob's like, so your mother and I are going to bow down. Mm -hmm. If that's a prophecy, it doesn't happen. And I had told you I was curious, thinking, well, his mom's gone. So what does he do? What does Jacob do? And you flip forward when Jacob stands in front of him, he does not bow down. He doesn't bow to, to Joseph and he doesn't bow to Pharaoh. He actually blesses Pharaoh and takes the upper stance on that because hmm. the greater blesses the the lesser. You know, just I think that's we get that concept from uh, Melchizedek and Abraham out of Hebrews. So the the greater blesses the lesser. So Joseph uh, Jacob does not come down to Egypt and act like another servant in the land under Pharaoh. He comes in there and takes a higher stance than Pharaoh himself. Hmm. And, but Pharaoh treats yeah. him kind of like a. Uh, an honored old adopted grandfather figure. How old are you? And he tells him like, and he's just having plain conversation with him. Right. I guess when you're, was he 147? I'm flat wrong. Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. <laughs> he dies. Chapter 47, verse 28. He dies 147 years old. There's 147 somewhere in there. Either way, he's 130 years old and comes down there and kind of takes stance over Pharaoh. So he's like, how old are you? 
Oh, that's good. And he just has a – I guess when you're 130, though, what I was going to say was it's kind of like we see old people with a mic here or you meet somebody, an old person in the congregation, they just say what they want. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's related to anything that you just said or – Yeah, he's going to say what he wants. Just let him be old. <laughs> Pharaoh is wise. The funny thing, though, is that old people who do that are playing a card. They're not doing it mindlessly. <laughs> I can do whatever I want. I'm old. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but that's, I guess that's what I was trying to get at is they did not, the sun and moon, if that's Jacob and his wife, did not bow down. His wife's already gone, and he doesn't ever do it. So what are the sun and moon in this vision? <clears throat> that's why I was thinking it's possibly related to Egypt gotcha. more than an individual person being represented. Cup nations. And I guess also sun and moon kind of covers day and night. Day and night, sun and moon, if that covers all in a sense, at that time period, Egypt covers all. Egypt is all. Yeah, they're pretty much the rulers. I mean, yeah, the rulers of the, run, of the known world. So, yeah. uh, Let's see. So back up to behold. <laughs> back up to behold. And I'm going to read just the, the two verses I put together. Okay. So they stand out a little bit differently than, than uh, the way you did. Because I think the way you did it, it accents a whole different idea. And the way I was reading it, I picked those verses out, and it accented a whole different idea again. <laughs> uh, 7 and 9. 30, this is Genesis 37, 7 and 9. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and eleven stars are bound down to me. So 22 years later, if you do the math throughout the pages, 22 years later, they all bow down to him. With the exception of the sun and moon as, as being people, like we just said. But I just centered on behold uh, five times here in these two tellings of the dreams. Behold is uh, hene. Usually it's like heneni. Ni being the first person singular participle or, or conjugation you put on the end of the verb to make uh, whatever it is, I. I am here. So when Isaac and Abraham are going up the mountain, uh, God first says to Abraham, Abraham, he says, Hineni, I'm here. Like what? Look, look at me. I'm present. And then when he's going up the mountain, I think it's Abraham, I mean, uh, Isaac says, Father, and he says, Hineni. I think that's the order there. But there's three different times that Hineni, I am here, is said in that story. But that's simply what the word is. Genesis thirty-seven thirteen. Israel said to Joseph, I will send you to them. And he answered, Hineni, I am ready. Depending on what translation you get, it's uh, look, see, hear, ready. So the JSB, that's the Jewish study Bible, points out that Joseph says Hineni, which meant look, see, here, and also means I am ready. It suggests at that other times that Hineni was spoken by someone, a father was seem. Excuse me. It suggests that at other times when Hineni was spoken by someone, a father was about to possibly lose his favorite son. Huh. So they give the examples there. The first one's what I just said. Abraham and uh, Genesis twenty-two. 
three times Hineni that involves Moria and the possible losing of Isaac. In Genesis 27, Isaac says it. That's one. Then Esau says it. Then Jacob says it. Next, Isaac says it again. Then Esau says it. Then Isaac says it twice. And then Rebekah. It's eight times altogether in Genesis 27 that Hanani is said. And he loses a son, or Rebecca loses her favorite son. Uh, I guess Isaac kind of loses his favorite son, too, in a way, to, to anger and distrust and another Canaanite wife. And <laughs> yeah. I imagine God the Father calling Jesus and saying to him, I will send you to them. And he said, Hanani. Huh. Just... Just need uh, the word there because he says it every two seconds. Behold, this blah blah blah. Yeah. Behold and blah 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 and behold. Yeah. So Jacob's journey is kind of the next thing I was heading towards. Okay. Because we get into uh, Hebron and Shechem and Dothan. That's kind of the first things that I went at first. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Genesis thirty-seven, twelve, and seventeen. Just to grab some of these place names or the the concept of what the journey is here, because he says I'm going to send you to them, and he says Hineni. Thirty-seven, twelve. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and the man said, "Whoever the man, he just shows up out of nowhere, <laughs> and he knows what's going on. They have gone away, for I have heard them say, let us go to Dothan.' I didn't do any work at all on this guy." I've heard sermons on it. I've seen it portrayed in movies. It's like the angel of the Lord. But he, whatever, whoever he was, he was close enough to hear them say where they were going next. Just, mm. just odd. Maybe they were, maybe they were talking really loud in a a <laughs> store or something. Maybe so. <laughs> you know, one of those loud talkers. <laughs> Uh, so they were supposed to be at Shechem, but had con- continued on in the event of pasturing to walk further. Uh, and I think we've talked before, like pasturing sheep and stuff out in and cattle out in a an open land. You keep going until there's something else green, and when that something green's been eaten, you keep going to the next place. So, but uh, the last place we marked Jacob with a place name was Genesis thirty-five twenty-seven, which at Hebron. Shechem is about 45 to 50 miles north of Hebron. Dothan is another 15 miles north of there. So they're possibly about 60 miles from home, walking. Mm. And Joseph just catches We read it like it's, oh, he just ran out there and went to go see what they were doing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, they, they apparently knew why Joseph was coming. Yeah. They knew that his dad sent him to... You know, tell on them or figure out what they were doing yeah, or spy on them and yeah, yeah. So and he came up in that coat, <laughs> with that long sleeve striped coat. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so looking at, I looked at Hebron, like I said, Hebron, Shechem, and Dothan. You mentioned something earlier about Dothan. Yeah. You know, um, wait do you want to do Dothan first? No, because I think it goes in a nice order if yeah. we do them. That's fine. Kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. You've done some work on Hebron too, haven't you, though? Just a little bit. I, did, I mean, I did on Hebron, Shechem, and Dothan, so. Okay. Uh, but I'll just get see say what I got, and you can add to it, whatever. <coughs> uh, Hebron is association. Root meaning is band or company, like a group of people. 
Its verb or its root verb means to unite, to ally together, uh, to be joined or bound together, to be in league with. So the first mention is Genesis thirteen eight. Uh, Abraham's third altar he built there. So he built it in response to the third time God said, I'm going to give you this land. So what is he doing? He's binding himself together with God. He's uniting with God there. His family definitely kept a close association with this land. Association is the other word that's uh, defined as. Most of them were united here in death. Bound together, association, united. Sarah was buried here. Abraham was buried here. Isaac was buried here. Rebecca and Leah were buried here. And Jacob joined them last. I was thinking that the Bible didn't tell us. I remember writing this, uh, writing about Shechem in a uh, a school paper. And I wrote that Joseph was also buried there, I believe, because we don't know. Huh. The teacher never told me I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> He's in Shechem. <laughs> it does actually tell us. But uh, Hebron was a good middle ground for the southern, uh, the kings of southern Canaan. And Joshua 10, when Adonizedek, who was the king of Jerusalem, uh, felt that Gibeon had betrayed the local union. See, when the Jews came in, right, they crossed the Jordan. The men of Gibeon got old bread and put on old shoes, etc. Mm-hmm. They go make a deal with them because they've heard these people are going to come kill us and that's it. So they make a nice deal with them and all the kings of southern Canaan got together, they met at Hebron. Hebron was the association. It's kind of like the local union hall. <laughs> they all get together and discuss, what are we going to do about Gibeon and what are we going to do about Israel who just came in the land? But it's, I think it's kind of a central meeting. If you look at it, some of the kings that are named, it's kind of a central place in the land for everybody to get together. And So uh, he called together armies from Hebron, Lachish, Eglon, and Yarmouth. <clears throat> they, uh, I'm just picturing they were all allied together and they were kind of ticked about what Gibeon did. Uh, Kiliath Arba is another name that means uh, town of Arba, but it's another name for the same place. Without going through all that, because it's connected to uh, the, the Anakim, some giants. <laughs> we don't have to go back through the Nephilim and everything, but I think Kiliath Arba was connected to that. Main points from Hebron, because it's kind of tied in the story here. He left Union with his father to go check on his brothers. Hmm. I grabbed that out uh, in like we've been saying, but just to say it again, Joseph laying over a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament and him being a huge, long picture, a very detailed picture. He left Hebron to go search for his brothers because his father sent him. Hmm. Hebron means association or unity. Jesus left the association of his father to go down and check on his brothers. It's hmm. interesting. You got anything else on Hebron? <clears throat> I just put that it was located in the hill of Judah. <clears throat> and he, well, the things you talked about, um, Hebron was given to Caleb, and became it became a city of city of refuge. Joshua twenty verse seven, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and da- David settled there and made it his capital. Um, so, <clears throat> a lot of things happened here and. Interesting, I didn't really do the pictorial, pictographic meaning, but um, the numeric meaning I think is interesting is wrath will be poured out on the second person because of the insufficiency of man and will send his Holy Spirit. The second person? Mm-hmm. The second person of the Trinity? Mm-hmm. Huh. 
<laughs> so okay, when you were talking about how the parallel yeah. of Dothan, it just kind of made it interesting that the numeric meaning of <clears throat> Jesus coming because of the insufficiency of man, yeah, and then will eventually send His Holy Spirit because of it. So <clears throat> this kind of reminds me of some of the things you're finding in the numeric meanings. It, it reminds me exactly of uh, Genesis five, the meaning, the base meanings of the roots of the names. Making sentence. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Shechem is back or shoulders, the first piece of land that Jacob bought when he came back from <coughs> Padanaram. Shechem is the place also where uh, the guy, the, the son of the king who is named Shechem. Let's see, the king was not named Shechem. The town was named Shechem and the son was named Shechem. Shechem raped Dina. Jacob's mm-hmm. daughter, and Simeon and Levi talked them all into getting circumcised, and then when they were sore on the third day, they killed all the males in the whole place. <laughs> good so, stuff in the Bible. Good stuff in Shechem there. Moses told Joshua to set up memorials on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. The tribes were split into groups on both mountains and uh, to pronounce blessings for the people and curses for the people. The middle ground is called Shechem. So Shechem means back or shoulder. Uh, it figuratively it had it carries a figurative meaning or is used idiomatically to shoulder a responsibility or to make a decision and stick with it. So this is this is the first <coughs> sermon I ever wrote in a lay speaking class. Huh. Methodist Church we have lay speakers. You can go to those, those classes because you're supposed to be able to fill in for the pastor at any time. So lay speaking classes is to help you figure out how to make any kind of sermon and just. Get started at least. <laughs> the first one I ever did was out of Joshua 24, and it involves Shechem. It also involves make a decision and stick with it, basically. Mm-hmm. So I had done that that whole issue that uh, between the blessings and the curses, those two mountains was a another mountain, another ridge called Shechem. The ridge is a shoulder or a back, and it carries that idiomatic meaning. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's exactly what Joshua was telling people to get down to and, and do. Let's see. City of Refuge also. Shechem and Hebron, both cities of refuge, both Levitical towns. Hmm. Joseph was sold into slavery here and buried here. Uh The tribe of Ephraim, his son, inherited it. So he had one. He just chose a town somewhere. That town is in an area. The area belonged to Ephraim anyway later on. I think I did my study of uh, Hebron when I was doing a sermon basically about Caleb. Caleb was, <laughs> he's cool, man. Mm. He's, Caleb is wow. like, he just, he kicked butt guy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care if there's any giants living there, Joshua. Moses said I could have it. I'm going to go kill him and take that town. Is that finally you? <laughs> Do it, man. Okay. Okay. See you in a few minutes. <laughs> That's basically what it was. <laughs> So some of the uh, main points from Shechem, the brothers, and, and let's go back to the first main point from Hebron. He left union with his father to go check on his brothers. Main point from Shechem, the brothers, representing Israel, uh, Israel, chosen by God, stray away from what is right and band together to murder. Only Reuben and Judah seek to rescue him. 
We kind of see that tied to that town, though. Huh. Some murder. Banning together for murder by Israel. Two did it. Here, two are trying to rescue him. It's still so far beyond my Bible knowledge to be able to say, oh, that, that tribe, they were associated with this, 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 and this. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a lot, too. <laughs> but if you could keep it with all 12 tribes through the entire Bible, that would be really awesome. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> we'll have to write a book on that. <laughs> Anything else on Shechem? Um, I just put that um, it was a place where Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal and led the people in its building, renewing the commitment to the law of Moses. Um, it's also the place where uh, Elisha found himself encircled by God's chariots. We had that, we yeah. saw the thing, Second Kings chapter 6. Um, I, got, I got the numeric and the pictographic meaning. <laughs> Yeah, I want to um, ask you if you uh, didn't tell me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the pictographic meaning I put was God's signature on the palm will bring life. And then the numeric <laughs> meaning is after a period of testing and trials, the children of the promise will find redemption. Huh. It kind of layers into uh, Israel and to New Testament church. Yeah. Both both in a way. Yeah. But the first one is the pictographic meaning. The mark in the hand. God's signature on the palm will bring life. Hmm. It, it almost gives the idea of a seal yeah. on the hand, but the mark in the palm would more suggest a, in, inside the hand. Right. Like a big nail mark. <laughs> mm -hmm. So a little interesting. Dothan. Oh, Dothan. Mine's super short. Is yours short? Eh. You want to do mine first? Go ahead. Reverse it. Um, I just put the mound of Dothan. Um, I, I can't tell if it's 120 feet or 1,200 feet. I'm guessing 120 feet above sea level and is roughly about 10 acres. Um, from the mound, someone can look out from the land and see that there's good crops um, around the area. Um, flocks were pastured here due to the heavy water supply by springs. Um, the Syrians try to capture Elisha, who was living here, um, 2 Kings 6, 8-14. And I found something. It was um, excavated by Dr. J.P. Free in the 1950s and 60s. He discovered a 10-room fortress inside the city wall that had walls four feet thick. A tomb was also discovered with four separate levels. Um, jugs, jars, bowls, daggers, spears, lamps... And over 160 skeletons were within um, the different levels of a tomb. So huh. just just a few little facts there. And you may save the picto and the numeric or go, no, ahead. go ahead. Okay. Uh, the pictographic was kind of a little long. Um, life will come through the doorway of the covenant. Hmm. And yeah. then uh, the numeric is, in the last days, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all creation. <laughs> That's the numeric. Mm -hmm. What was that a four-letter word? Oh, uh, three. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Dalit, Tav, and Noon. I was picturing um, above in there. Oh, Do. I'll say Dalit's number four, which deals with the four elements or the four regions of the earth, um, or God's whole creation. Tav is the number four hundred, which can mean um, last in a period of testing. 
um, Jubilee multiplied by new birth, and noon, which is number 50, Holy Spirit, Pentecost. So, hmm. What I've got is basically that Dothan shows up in two places in the Bible. It was interesting to me what fell out of just looking at those two stories, or two narratives. So here, where we're looking at now, it mean, number one, it means two wells. I thought, oh, two. That's great. And then I find out it shows up in two places. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, here, Jacob's brothers capture him and throw him into a pit with no water in it. Then they eat without him and sell him into slavery. All that is said and done, after all is said and done, God saved Joseph for the freedom of many. And that's basically Jesus, uh, Genesis 50. 2 Kings 8 you said six. Is it six or is it eight? I put six. I don't know. One of us is wrong. We're not going to look it up now. You, the reader, go open your own Bible. Second <laughs> <laughs> Kings six or eight. It's about uh, Elisha. All right. Elisha, meaning God is salvation, takes the Syrian army captive in blindness. He delivers them to the king in Samaria. He instructed this enemy should be served a meal and released to freedom. So what I was just looking at with the two mentions of Dothan is the example of one man of God being in the hand of others, other men, versus the men being in the hand of man, the hand of the man of God. Hmm. How does men do things? How does the man of God do things? Or how does God do things? It's one thing I've been noticing more and more in my devotionals, and I've, I've tried to mention it but not pound it is that the whole Bible is basically about the glory and honor and praise of man or the glory and honor and praise of God. It's always this, and when you put it in man's terms, you're basically, do you take credit for what you do that God did through you? Because you're glorifying man if you do that. But if I do something and somebody says, you really did that good, and I say, God made me this way, that's only way I'm able to do it. You're <laughs> right. glorifying, giving honor and praise to God. It's always about God or man and which one is able to do something. So uh, Jacob's brothers capture him. This is when the man of God, the chosen one of God, is in the hand of men. They throw him in a pit, give him no water. They eat without him, so they give him no food. When Elisha, the man of God, captures a bunch of men who are enemies of God, he takes them not into it, he didn't throw them into a pit, but takes them in blindness. And then when he delivers them, he makes sure they are fed and given, given a drink and food. Uh, when the men catch the man of God, men sell them into slavery. Hmm. When the man of God catches the men, he sets them free. The way God does things, hmm. the way man does things. Just that's what I noticed in, uh, the main points from Dothan, God treats his enemies better than his enemies treat him. He treats them better than they deserve. <laughs> <laughs> How long are we going there? An uh, hour and five minutes. We can... It's fixed to be 10 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. That's... I was going to ask you one question. I don't know if it kind of goes along with what you just said, but... Um... Probably completely unrelated. Uh, not, not necessarily. <laughs> when you talked about how... Um, how God, how man treats God, and how how God treats man, how man treats God. Um, you know, it, I think it's funny. Like when you talk about um, when sometimes we don't give credit to God, etc. 
um, I don't know why this thought popped in my head, but what what are your feelings on? Um, I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but you know, uh, we probably the, agree though. Probably so, but <laughs> the, I know there's there's a fine line um, somewhere um, where we believe there's evil. We we believe there's um, evil forces, Satan, whatever, yeah. um, at work, and obviously Jesus deals with those forces too. But I also feel like they get too much credit in a sense to yeah. where um, I almost think a person's worst enemy in, in the spiritual world is ourselves because we make the decision to do X, Y, or Z and we open ourselves up to whatever else. What are your thoughts on, uh, you know, the division between demonic influence Satan, versus demonic yeah. versus your own self? I think more often, and I guess I would distinguish between myself and my sin nature because myself has been saved. Mm-hmm. I am savable. My sin nature is the problem I keep dealing with. Uh, it is a part of my existence. It influences me. It influences myself to do a lot of wrong things. Mm-hmm. If the demonic spirits that are assigned to me to make me stray are going to do anything, they're going to use those. We know that. They're not stupid. They use what we are already having weakness problems in. Right. So how do you say there's a defining line? I, I'll say this too, though. Uh Satan tries harder with someone who belongs to God to get them to follow than he does with someone who belongs to him. So if I can if I can get weeds to grow in your garden and you never pick them out, I can walk away. Weeds are growing <laughs> in your garden, and you're not picking them out. <laughs> I don't have to come back yeah. and make more weeds grow because they're going to take over. So uh, maybe after there's a, there's a point where they try to come and begin an influence but after the influence has been begun and we just dive into it and continue on without ever checking ourselves, right? They don't really have to do anything else. Yeah. You will become lost more and more. And and uh, kind of adding extra to to it because I hear it a lot and and I don't know why it bothers me. It it, it bothers me. It shouldn't, but it does. Um, and that is when people say, you know, you have a sickness or something's going wrong and you say, we need to beat the devil up or cast the devil out or, you know, this doesn't belong. The devil's defeated. I, I get the concept, but I also think of that we are a fallen people. We have a sinful body, flesh. And we're just in a, we're going to die. I mean, we're a just sinful a, body or a body, uh, what's the word? Uh, in, uh, not engulfed or un, under the power of. Right, yeah. A body under the power of sin that exists, which includes decay. Yeah, well, yeah. It does include, point. death is part of the cycle right now. Right. So, so like, I wonder where you find the balance of... Because, you know, I hurt my, you know, I have inflammation in my body right now, and I've had uh, ankle problems for a few weeks. And, yeah. um, you know, I, ha- I had a person pray for me, which I appreciate, but the way they were praying was, you know, devil, you can't, you know, 
devil, you know, you've done enough work on Mark. And I'm like, eh, just my body just, I mean, I don't know if it was the devil messing with my body necessarily. It was just my body's getting old and. I don't know. I don't know where to, where to define the difference in that right there, to be honest with you. But I do know it's kind of like when I hear, not that he's wrong for what he does for a living, but let's just use Jay Sekulow for a moment, who is a lawyer who fights. He, he's a he's a Jewish believer lawyer who fights for Christians' rights. And some of the phrasing sometimes is like, we need you to sign this petition because this shouldn't be happening. And he then he he's what he's been talking about the whole time is some kind of persecution that's happened in some place against a Christian. It actually should be happening. Persecution should be happening to Christians. If it isn't, the Bible's a lie. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what's supposed to be happening. Yeah, we should fight it. I'm not saying we shouldn't fight it. We shouldn't try our best to get our rights. If there's a legal law in the land that gives you rights to do a thing, do it. And somebody is persecuting you to not do that thing. If there's a legal right to it, yeah, you should fight for it. But I'm just saying, as a concept, when we say this is, isn't right, it actually is right. Sickness, in a way, is part of living because death is a part of living, and sickness leads to death. Someone's yeah. got to lead to death. <laughs> right. Until Jesus comes back, every single person will die. So something's got to lead to death. Either a sudden thing like a car accident or a murder or a slow thing like a sickness or a cancer. Something's right. got to lead to it. Yeah. That's a natural part of it right now. And, I mean, we can, let's say we got a, a, a drunk who is in a car wreck and hits a telephone pole head on. Do we say <laughs> that demons were influencing him? To hit the telephone pole? No, we probably would say the demons are influencing him to drink and then drive. All right. But did the demons influence him to hit the telephone pole? No, he's driving drunk. That's what happens next, probably. <laughs> it's right. more probable. Yeah. That's going to happen next that way. But I don't know. To say that demons cause every single sickness, I don't. I don't know. I don't buy that because every single time that Jesus healed somebody, he didn't always cast out a demon too. Sometimes he cast a demon out. Sometimes he cast a demon out and then healed sickness. Sometimes he just healed sickness. Good point. And we did a devotion about this a while back. Well, you were I one, but it's not related 100% of the time. There, You can't make a law on it like like you can't say a day is a thousand years every single time. <laughs> you can't use that as a math formula for biblical concepts. Right. It's it's a more of an idiomatic thing. Saying it's a that, poetry type. Yeah, it's yeah. a poetry type language. But... Uh, I don't know, with sickness, do I think that demons were influencing me maybe to smoke as much as I did when I was younger and ruined my lungs? Probably. But my lungs ruined because my body was not made to smoke. Some people honestly can smoke their whole life, and it doesn't really hurt them much. Yeah, I wasn't made to do it. It tore me down in a few short years. And I've been battling my way out of what it did to me through exercise and having to work at it. The thing that's happening, though, is age, and that comes on, and age hurts, too. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just... Uh, it's not a one-case. No, it's, it's not, not a one-case rule. Yeah. But you talk to any old person. I mean, just ask yourself, is sickness part of the deal? I talk to any old person, 80% of them, within, if you talk to them long enough, maybe 10 minutes, they're going to tell you the last time they went to the doctor, which was yesterday or today, <laughs> and what medicine they're now on. 
That's the majority of conversations with a lot of adults all the time when I'm when I because I have customers that I go to their house, etc. Older customers are going to tell you about their medicine. My mom tells me about my medicine, about her medicine all the time. <laughs> We're talking about uh, she still say I called her today. You know, it downpoured and she says, uh, "Were you working out in the rain today? Did you get wet?" Nope. I was working in the rain, but under the umbrella. Didn't get wet at all the entire day. <laughs> well, she immediately starts telling me about her medicine and visiting the doctor. And with mom, I'm thinking, somewhere or another, there's a rain in this story. <laughs> so it ends up that she was, after this long story of medicine and drugs and a three-hour visit, that dad went to the store to get some food or something during that time, and it rained off and on while he was gone. <laughs> but there it, it is. But it starts with uh, it starts with medicines and doctor visits first, <laughs> because when you get old, that's what you do. Death is part of the cycle. Sickness is part of the cycle. It's part of being alive. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I'm with you on uh, to say again. We I say it jokingly, but I say it truthfully now. Yes, we happen to agree again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll find something one of these days we disagree with. <laughs> We will. Even if I, just the funny thing is, if you say something I don't like or I say something you don't like, sometimes we may not like it and we may acknowledge that with each other, but most of the time we still say are saying something the other person agrees with. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a point that I, I, I can't argue. Well, I mean, I think even if we did disagree on something, you know, we would just generally kind of, okay. I mean, we, we might have a discussion about it, but I don't, I mean, it wouldn't be like a, uh, creating an argument or anything yeah. like that, you know, like you are, you tell some people, I disagree with you about this. They get bent out of it's shape. A, it's a fight now. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, I had a, I had a fight between two church people in my office and they were like, they were yelling at each other. I'm like, Oh my goodness. That's what church people do. Right. And I'll, they're like, Mark, what do you think? <laughs> nope. Not, not telling you my opinion. I think y'all both yelling too loud. <laughs> I'm trying to get some work done. There you go. In my office. <laughs> Go outside. Oh, well, so anyway, it's all good. All right, so join us next time we talk about the pit. <laughs> for listening to the Two Spies podcast. If you would like to join in on the conversation, go to numa.life and leave a comment. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Music, or whatever app you're listening on. For additional articles on faith and life, visit numa.life.